Mrs. Quick, appreciate that much. Let's grab our Bibles. We'll turn to Romans chapter number 3. Romans chapter number 3 as we get back to our study. And I don't see any of the ushers in the back, so hopefully you already have your outlines. And uh, we might have one who pops in here in a moment. And uh, uh, we'll get some outlines here in just a moment. Uh, thank you, Brother Doug. Or Brother Jim, either one. Brother Jim, if you want to, that'd be fine. Go ahead. All right, Brother Jim's going to make his way down. If you need an outline, I encourage you to get his attention. Thank you, Doug and Jim. Appreciate that. And if you need one, catch Brother Jim here coming down the middle aisle. All right, our last time occurrence a couple of weeks ago, we got to leave off here in chapter number three. What we've seen is this, and so let's kind of pick up, kind of get ourselves back in the mindset of Romans and Paul's epistle here. Uh, what we've seen from the end of chapter 2 to the beginning of chapter 3 is that Paul has really laid waste to the Jewish claims of superiority and honestly special treatment in the courtroom of God. And so as we've had as the setting this courtroom, uh, the Jews have walked in thinking they're going to get special treatment. They're going to get privilege. They're going to get uh, somebody treating them, in fact, God treating them uh, in a special way, uh, kind of a pass because of who they are. But what they have seen and what they have heard from Paul, from God's Word, is that all their character references, all the evidence, the arguments offered uh, on their behalf up until this point, those are all lying in the dust. They're not doing anything for them. They have accomplished another thing. Paul uh, summarily has taken each one and proven those to uh, still uh, make them condemned or render them condemned. And so we see now this is their last ditch effort. Uh, this is what we call, in a sense there, if you like football terminology, this is their Hail Mary. <laughs> this is the thing that they come to now, and, and Paul has boiled it down through three chapters or two and the beginning of a third. He's boiled it down to their uh, last-ditch effort. And so they embark to shoot holes through the prosecution's case. In other words, Paul's accusations that bring them under condemnation, and they do it by how? By asking questions. And so we've looked already at one question. We'll see another one this evening. I want to take a moment, though, and, and remind you or point out to you how we have seen, and I think it's been shown already in these chapters we've already studied, that Paul <laughs> was the ideal author for the book of Romans. I'd like to put it this way. He, we have seen already that he had a very astute legal mind. He's presenting very much a legal case on a spiritual level. And, and Paul was, uh, in many ways, certainly gifted by the Holy Spirit, gifted by God above to write such a book, such a treatise that, that presents for us, okay, here is why all mankind stands guilty before God. And yea, it is even much more than that. It is a logical presentation of the foundation of the Christian faith. Probably the, the clearest or certainly the best that has ever been written. Paul wrote it. That's why I continually emphasize this point. So you and I would appreciate it for what it is and never take it for granted. May I share with you what one commentator described the epistle of Romans as? And I think this says it well for us to keep in our minds and our thoughts as we study this book. Because you say, well, we've been in Romans now for 12, uh, uh, 12 parts or more than that, actually. And uh, it's getting kind of old, this Romans thing. And what Paul says, notice what he says about Romans. I think it's a great truth. He says this, the epistle of Romans was not not written for the simpleton. Now, that builds you up tonight, amen? 
Okay, well, it's not written for the spiritual simpleton. It isn't written for somebody who, who can't understand much. It's written for believers and unbelievers alike. It is written to challenge us. Notice what he says. It's profundity is impelling. Don't let that mess with you, okay? Profundity just means it's deep thinking. It's, it's, it's awesome presentation of a great truth is impelling. kind of means compelling. In other words, it moves us. It forces us to a conclusion to act upon. He says, and he goes on. You cannot read such verses without sensing the divine wisdom. Now notice how he ties this together. That brings forward every argument for the prosecution in order that the the condemned sinner, excuse me, might be justified before God and liberated to enjoy the love of God in all its fullness. It's a great description of the whole body of work of Romans. We're just at the beginning. We're on the cusp of it. You and I know this well. In present day court cases, in the settings of a courtroom, even today, lawyers will often cite decisions from the past. They'll quote cases. They'll say in so-and-so versus so-and-so in 1948 and so-and-so versus so-and-so in 1970, this decision came out. The court said this. And they'll look at those court cases for what we call precedence. And they look at it in the present to look for precedence. Well, can I tell you this evening, such is the book of Romans for we Christians, for us as believers. We've been given a book. In other words, lawyers love to study the the cases of old. They love to go back and pull out things here and there. And they love to say, okay, well, look at what happened in this court case. And look at this decision that was made. They love to go back and say, see, that's why, judge, you should rule in this way or another way. Aren't you thankful tonight that you and I have the book of Romans? That we can go back, no matter the question that is brought to us, that is offered to us by the critic, the skeptic, the one who says, no, I'm a good person, no, I'm a moralist, and they can answer anything, you and I always have something to go back to. I'm thankful for this epistle. I'm thankful for what it presents to you and I. It's a foundational epistle that presents an airtight case. Now, here's the great news, which is relevant today. And it's a case against all of mankind. And yet it does not leave mankind just condemned. It goes on. It presents the only hope for justification, that which is found in Jesus Christ alone. And it doesn't stop there. It continues. It presents a thorough manual for how this new life in Christ should look from the day of salvation forward. From the moment he says, well, should we continue in sin that grace should abound? God forbid. And from there on out, he begins to describe what the Christian life looks like. So he takes a a person from condemnation to sanctification uh, and uh, uh, the idea of, of being saved. And then he goes on to progressive sanctification, living like Christ. The book of Romans is phenomenal. You and I ought to be excited this evening for the privilege and the gift we have uh, of being able to study the book. I encourage you, too, to be, in, uh, to be encouraged. Like climbing a hill, <laughs> like driving up a long mountain to get to the top. Can I tell you this? When we come to different parts in, in Romans, the view will be worth it. And when we were on vacation just a couple of weeks ago, we visited Chickamauga Battle Site. It's in Chickamauga, uh, Georgia, just south of uh, Chattanooga there. And there they had this huge monument that was a spiral stairs. And I'll tell you, I felt winded halfway up. 
It's enclosed, had small windows you could barely see out. The kids were running up and down. They probably made it twice before I made it once. But boy, when you got up to the top, there was a beautiful view. Boy, you could see back to Chattanooga, and you could see all around this huge battlefield, and they could see the different monuments. It was neat. By this monument, there's actually a sign to Michigan. A Michigan uh, a group of soldiers had, had fought there. Several had died and so forth. That was neat to see. But I'll tell you, as much as it was worth it to get to the top and see that view, it is worth it in studying God's Word because we get to different places, and we get different views and perspectives. He's building up to it, much like you and I would climb that monument. We climb a hill. We get, and you know what else I like? We also were able to visit what's called Lookout Mountain in Chattanooga, Tennessee. And as you did, we drove up there. There's a long drive up, 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 up. And, uh, and uh, you came to different parts and different views along the top of the mountain. Such it is for Romans. We're building to, to get to these different peaks, if we could put it this way. Chapter 3 is really the first of these peaks. We're going to get to it here in a few moments, or at least in a few messages, as we've been building up to that all men are guilty before God. But we also know that he also, in Romans chapter 3, presents the next part of it, the gift of God. So kind of the first peak, in a sense, and the view will be worth it. But before we get to the peak, we've got to climb the last few steps. The last few yards and see what the Holy Spirit and Paul, uh, their answers to the questions that are given by the Jews. The first question that was offered, we saw it here in verse 1. Yeah, we, we read it just a couple weeks ago. What advantage then hath the Jew, or what profit is there of circumcision? Literally, what is the profit and advantage of being a Jew if, Paul, what you say is true? We put it this way in your outline. Uh, the concerns of the moralistic hypocrite. Uh, why do you discredit the obviously blessed position that Israel holds as God's chosen nation? We saw that, and, and how they would question, Paul, you're tearing down Israel, and they're privileged position if we may put it this way and yet we understood that Paul emphatically proclaimed that there was much advantage in being a Jew they had God's hand upon them in many ways and the chief manifestation or the the sign of God's hand upon them was the fact that they had the very word of God used in the term oracles they were greatly privileged he says that in verse 2 we saw that much every way and chiefly in other words the greatest manifestation of it is you possess the oracles of god the revelation of god the word of god and yet that privileged position does not justify you spiritually can i tell you tonight now listen to me carefully we said this just two weeks ago and i'll leave it here but you and i can attend a baptist church we can carry a 1611 king james and we can still go to hell those things do not justify us spiritually The only thing that justifies us spiritually is our faith and trust in Jesus Christ. That He is our identification. And yea, the Jews had this in their heads and their minds that, okay, we are Jews, therefore we are justified in God's sight. And that was Paul's answer. We saw that here in this statement that uh, their physical position, heritage, yes, they were blessed as Jews, but it was their spiritual heritage that he was bringing into question. Now, secondly, their question is this. First of all, what what privilege is there? What profit is there of circumcision of being a Jew? We come down to verse 3. Notice this question for this evening. For what if some did not believe? Shall their unbelief make the faith of God without effect? 
Now let's look at this. We'll put it into question form and then we'll develop it and, and, and attempt to understand it and what they are asking. Notice it. The question would be this. They are saying, why do you cast doubt on the integrity and faithfulness? In fact, some of your Bibles might even have that in your middle column there. Uh, faithfulness of God. So let me first explain it this way. First of all, let's understand that a little bit later. In fact, in Romans 9 through Romans 11, Paul comes back to this point and he explains it robustly. He explains it through several chapters, this answer to this question. And so down the road, and, and as I said, Romans 9 through 11, so that's about three or five years, we'll be there. Uh, and, uh, <laughs> uh, and so... But we'll get there and we'll understand it. So tonight we're going to see his shortened answer. In other words, just a brief answer that he gives uh, here. But in order to understand Paul's answer, we must first understand the question. That makes sense, doesn't it? We must first understand the question to understand the answer. Now, has anyone ever asked you a question and you didn't know what they were talking about? I mean, has that ever, where, where someone asks you a question and, and you really have no idea what, what it, you have to, your only response is, what are you talking about? Like, like maybe husbands, you come home and your wife's looking and says, oh, did you get it? Uh-oh. What was it I was supposed to pick up? What, what did I forget? And, and yeah, wait a minute, I, I'm not connecting the dots here between the questions. So it's good to know what the question is. I, I have many a times walked into my house, been bombarded by three or four children, however many we have, and... Uh, the question is, Dad, 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 can we go? Can we go? And I'm like, what in the world are you talking about? <laughs> They've been talking about something for some time during the day, whatever, with their mom. And, and I have to get clarification to understand what does the question pertain to? What is it referencing? So it's true for a question like this. Spiritually, we've got to understand. And can I tell you sometimes, friend, listen to me. When you're witnessing to somebody and they're asking questions, you better make sure you understand the question. Because questions often, we've said this many times, questions often reveal as much about a person as their answers do. The questions that they ask often gives us a great glimpse into their heart, their thinking, what's going on up here and in here. So questions are a great way to understand somebody, but you have to understand the question. What are they really asking? What are they getting to? What's the point behind of it? So the first thing we see as we break apart this question is this. Their logic, uh, we, we perceive their logic, uh, they're using it to turn Paul's statement as no longer evidence against themselves or a referendum upon them, but they're turning it upon God himself. See, with this question, they're, they're turning the focus from them, saying, oh, no, no, no. Now, they're not arguing, well, we, we shouldn't be condemned. Look at our character and everything else. Now what they're saying is, wait a second, if you're saying we're condemned, then what does that make God look like? What does that say about God? I'm a Jew, and we'll develop it a little bit more. Literally, they were saying this. Now, listen carefully so we understand it. Paul, if what you are saying is truth, that there are Jews who are not justified in God's sight because of their unbelief, then God has not been faithful in his own promises. So they're turning around and looking at God and saying, wait a minute, Paul, if you're saying there's some Jews that are condemned because of their unbelief, that we're condemned if we don't believe, then God's faithfulness, God's promise to the Jews, he's not keeping his side of the bargain. In essence, they're accusing Paul of saying that God is unfaithful, that God's integrity has been brought into question. 
If there are Jews who are condemned, then what about God's unconditional promises of salvation to Israel? If the Jews, if all Jews are not justified, then God didn't keep up his end of the bargain. What good were all the, the covenants? And again, Paul's already dealt with circumcision. That's a picture of those covenants. What good are all the covenants if God is not going to fulfill them? Now listen to me. Let's put it into modern terms. Sometimes I like understanding a question from somebody by comparing it to a modern question or a thought that is similar. So in modern terms, let's think about why some people don't come to church. One reason, and have you ever heard this? You're out and inviting them to church, and maybe you say, hey, we'd love for you to come to Fostoria Baptist Church. We have services this time on Sunday. Love for you to come. Have you ever heard somebody say something like this? Oh, no, 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 no. I would never go to church because I've known a lot of Christians before in my life. And, and they're not any better than I am. In fact, a few of them are scoundrels. See, I've heard that, and I'm sure many of you have, and witnessing, maybe inviting someone to church. And, and so notice what they have done. Now, now, I'll tell you, it happens because we live in a small community. We'll bring up Fostoria Baptist Church. I'm telling someone about it, and they say, oh, isn't that the church that so-and-so goes to? I get that so much, and you probably do too. And my question or my answer to them is often this. What do you think about them first? <laughs> no, I don't ask that. I'm just kidding. Uh, you sometimes want to ask that. So what do you actually think? Well, before I say yes or no, they attend. <laughs> Let's, uh, what do you think about them? <laughs> uh, see, people uh, do that. They, they equate the two. Now listen, what's happening in that context is the same thing that's happening here with the Jews and with God. Now listen to me. and Let's put it into context so we understand. If that is the case, if somebody says, well, I know, I've known Christians before, and maybe even somebody that went to that church, and boy, they're scoundrels, they're, they're, they're some of the worst people that I know, the worst neighbors, and, and whatever, what are they saying? Well, they're saying if that's what a follower of Jesus Christ looks like and how he or she acts, then I don't want any part of God or Jesus. So their statement is this, as it is on your outline. They've turned an evaluation of a faulty Christian into a referendum on God. So they've taken the, a faulty uh, Christian evaluation. They've watched this Christian, and, and boy, they haven't matched what, what someone might think a Christian would act like or talk like or treat them like, and they've now turned that into a referendum on God. Now listen carefully. Does a sinning Christian... One who succumbs to the flesh's influence, who presents himself as a carnal Christian to others, does that mean that God's word doesn't work as it says it does? If there are believers that, that, that maybe don't say what they should and, and, and they cheat somebody and uh, they're unkind, does that mean that the Holy Spirit is not as powerful as he claims to be? If there's a carnal Christian who, who treats his neighbors mean and unkind, does that mean that the ways of the follower of Jesus Christ are neither better or blessed or worth following? In two words, God forbid. That's not what it's saying. It's unfair to turn an evaluation of a faulty Christian into a referendum on God. Literally, that is exactly what the Jews were doing here. What does it mean then? Well, all that means is that there are Christians, now listen to me, because Paul answers this way. In our context of what you and I deal with, all that means is this. There are Christians who are liars in the way they live, and God is still a God of truth. 
God is still a God of truth, of faithfulness. He is who he is. He's a holy God. God's character and holiness have not changed. Neither are they lessened by the lack of faithfulness on the part of a believer. What God can accomplish and see achieved in the life of a believer is not made null and void because one believer fails to follow in faith the teachings of God. And that's exactly how Paul answers this question. Look at verse 4. Notice it. He says what I just said a moment ago. God forbid. It's the greatest negative you can have in the Greek language. He is saying, no, there, there's, it's not even conceivable. It, you can't even imagine that that would be true. God forbid. Yea, let God be true, but every man a liar. It's a great statement. As it is written, that thou mightest be justified in thy sayings and mightest overcome when thou art judge. That's a packed verse, and we'll try to unpack it as best we can. In their question, what what have the Jews pointed to? Now listen, this is what they said. They're pointing to God's character, and they're saying, whoa, whoa, whoa. If God's character is who he, as good as we think it is, if he has integrity, then that's our defense. Let's put it into modern context of what they are trying to point to. Okay, let, let's say that, um, I, 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 let's just pick somebody here. Um, let, let's just say that uh, Brother Vern Cooper. Okay, let's say Brother Vern Cooper and I had made a, uh, a, um, a covenant or agreement. Brother Vern, do you still have your motorcycle? Okay, fantastic. Let's say that Brother Vern and I, we made an agreement. I came up to him and said, Brother Vern, I want to buy your motorcycle. I've grown out my facial hair and now I want a motorcycle. So I just keep moving that way. And... Just kidding. Okay. Um, let's say, hey, I'm about, and we agree. And he says, okay, Pastor Henry, I'm going to sell it to you for this much. And I said, that sounds like a great price. And we'll, we'll do that. And I, I, a week from today, I'll bring you the money. And we'll, we'll, we'll do this transaction. We'll follow through on this agreement. So a week later, I show up. And let's say I bring $5,000 less. And I go up to Brother Vernon and say, hey, I'm ready to buy your motorcycle. Like we agreed on and, and, and we compacted and covenanted for and, and I, I have the money here. And he looks at it and he counts quick and says, wait, that's not enough. Yeah, I know that, but, but I still want to buy it and, and I want you to take this amount. Brother Vernon says, no way. This was the price and that, that's what it cost. Now, how fair would it be for me then to come back to the church and say, listen, folks, I, I hate to tell you, we have a church member who does not keep his word. Brother Vern Cooper agreed to, with me to, to sell his motorcycle, and he, he backed out of it. He, he didn't keep his word. We had an agreement, and we had a transaction, and, and clearly his character is not what we thought it was. Now, would that be fair or unfair? Completely unfair. But can I tell you, that's exactly what Paul says the Jews are doing. It's exactly what Paul is pointing out. Say, whoa, 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 wait a second. Don't you bring in the character. Listen, the problem is not with Vern Cooper. The problem is with Pastor Henry. I'm the one who changed the dynamics, the terms of the deal, the contract. He, he's ready to sell it to me for the original price. I haven't met the price. It's unfair for me to turn around and say, well, man, if his, apparently, hey, Brother Vern's not going to sell it to me, so he must not be a man of character. We shook on it. You say, well, Pastor Henry, wait a second, that's not his fault. You brought $5,000 less. Can I tell you the same truth? holds true for any person that looks at God and will not come to God on his terms, and then they blame God for God not accepting them. It's the exact same thing. It's exactly what Paul is pointing out here. He said, listen, wait, you can't point to God and say he is unfaithful because there are Jews who have unbelief. 
who do not have faith. It is a concept that Paul develops throughout the book of Romans. You see, throughout the Old Testament, if you had time, and FBI is good for it, if you had time to really delve into the Old Testament, what you would find throughout its pages is that salvation has always been presented as being dependent or conditional upon one's faith. That is, it is what qualifies one for salvation. We see that repeated in Hebrews as we look back and we, we, we get the hall of heroes or the hall of faith, the perspective of these folks by faith, by faith, by faith, by faith, by faith. Salvation is by faith. It's always been that case. It didn't change with the Old Testament and the New Testament. It's always been that way. God has always presented it as such. So it helps us to understand a truth in scriptures. It's this here on your outline, uh, second, or the first part of number two. Throughout the Old Testament, there are promises that God made that are what? Conditional, conditional, i.e. salvation has to be by faith. You don't naturally, just because you're an Israelite, you aren't saved spiritually, you aren't justified spiritually. Yes, we've already seen there's privilege that comes with it, but you're not justified spiritually. And there are promises that God made that are unconditional. It flows throughout the whole Old Testament and even into the New Testament. You all know this well. Tell me this. God said to children that if they would do this to their parents, their lives would be long in the land that God gives them. What is that? Obey, right? Children, obey your parents in the Lord. And so for the Israelites, it was even tied to the land. It was conditional. Is that conditional? Yes. Don't obey your parents. Your life is not going to be long in the land. Wouldn't you like to hold that over your kids? Amen? You better obey me. Your life is, your life is shrinking. <laughs> I might help it along. No, just kidding. Uh, but it's shrinking. So it's conditional. Now let me ask you this. When we see the rainbow in the sky, is the rainbow in the sky and God's promise that he'll never devastate the whole earth, judge it through a flood, is that dependent upon you living a sinless day? No, that's an unconditional promise. It has nothing to do with you and I. It has nothing to do with how we live in a specific day or anything else. God said simply this, it's unconditional. I'm going to put my rainbow up in the sky, and it's going to show you that I will never flood the earth again in judgment, period. And so throughout the Old Testament, there are numerous occasions where God gives unconditional promises and conditional promises. And Paul's making a very crucial point here to the Jews. Notice this. As we also understand that, there's conditional promises and unconditional promises. We come to understand that there are promises that God made in the Old Testament that were promises to the individual Jew, and there are promises made to the Jewish nation. So just like there's difference in conditional and unconditional, there's also promises found in the New Testament, some that bear especially for the whole nation, and there's some that bore specifically just for the individuals, the individual Jew. And we don't have time to go through there, but there's a ton of them on both things. And then, follow with me here, as you continue to study the Old Testament, you find that most, not all, but most of all the unconditional promises were made to the nation of Israel as a whole. Not specifically or especially the individual Israelites. And then most, but not all, of the promises made to the individual Jew 
were conditional. Many of them, we studied them in Isaiah. God says this, if you'll do this, this, and this, I'll pardon you. If you'll do this, this, and this, you'll have great things in the land. And so it's conditional. It's to the individual Jew. Many of them are. It's not to say that there weren't conditional things given to the nation, but we see this uh, focus and emphasis on conditional for the individual Jew. Often the unconditional are reserved for the entire nation. And you see that even on your outline there, the most often this is what we see. Conditional, individual, unconditional nation. Now here's the key. Over time, what happened? The separation and difference became erased and lost in the thinking of the Jews. See, they lost sight of the separation. So what, what happened? Well, hey, I'm a Jew, therefore I have these unconditional promises by God. Oh, oh, yes, you're part of the Jewish nation. But what does Paul write later? Now, now this is where it all ties in. He gets into the Romans 9 through chapter 11. But what does he say? All of you that are physically of the Jews are not of the Jews. We read a little bit of that in the previous chapter. He kind of got into that just a, a, a tad, a, the tip of the iceberg in a sense. But later on, he develops that. He says, wait a minute, you, you may be physically of the Jews, but you're not all the Jews. There it was of Abraham uh, and so forth. What's he saying? Well, he's making a point here. That yes, as a part of the nation, there are unconditional promises. Again, we'll, we'll kind of develop this, help our understanding of it. But in the thinking and even the teaching, the rabbis picked up on this concept. Well, you're a Jew, so you, you have a special place in God's courtroom. You're justified because you are just a Jew. God never said that. God never promised it that. Literally, what happened is this. They said that the future physical salvation promised to the nation as a whole became interpreted as the individual salvation and justification of each Jew. In other words, something that God had never promised outside the condition of the individual faith of a person. But be assured, God will keep every unconditional promise and covenant He has ever given Israel as a nation. Because why? God is a faithful God. He is a God of His Word. All we have to do is study some of what we did in Isaiah. We look ahead to Revelation. What do we understand? Hey, Israel is coming back on the scene. God's going to restore them in some ways. That's why we look to the Middle East so much. Can I tell you right now, there's going to be a whole lot of, uh, even Christians, but a whole lot of people that believe in covenant, covenant theology and reform theology that are going to be surprised because Israel's coming back on the scene. A lot of these promises that God has made to them, it's going to come to fruition. It can't spiritually and, and apply to the church as they like to try to interpret it. No, it applies to Israel, and it's going to happen. Because why? God is a God of his word. But listen to me. Though Israel will be restored as a nation, the, the, the predecessor to the millennial kingdom, that is not a guarantee that an individual Jew is going to be justified in God's sight because he is a Jew. No. How is a person justified? By faith and trust in Jesus Christ. For by grace are you saved through faith, and that not of yourselves is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. That is how you are saved and justified. The Jews were clinging to this idea. I'm a Jew. I'm, I'm an Israelite. And so therefore I'm justified in God's sight. No, you're not. Oh, the nation's going to be restored, and, and Israel will be blessed in the future kingdom, but that does not guarantee that you are going to be saved justified in the eyes of God as Romans deals with. 
Paul is painting a great picture for us. These two truths, these conditional and unconditional promises, these promises to the nation and these uh, conditional promises to the individual Jew are not to be confused uh, one way or the other. The promises to the nation are not to be confused with the elements, the conditional elements of his promise to individual Jews. Let me put it this way. Uh, illustrations sometimes help us to grasp and, and kind of further concrete. Let me say this. What, what if I went to my family this, this summer and I said, listen, guys, and uh, specifically my children, but I said, hey, this summer uh, before school starts in August, we're going to do a day trip in Detroit. We hope we survive and we're going to go down there and have a good time. We're going to do a day trip to Detroit and we're going to have a good time as a family. I promise you, unconditionally, it's going to happen. We're going to go as a family. We're going to have a day trip in Detroit and have a good time, whether it be the zoo or other things, whatever's down there, we're going to do it. And uh, we're going to have a great time, and I promise them. Then soon comes a, a date set aside. We, we plan on it. I come to them and say, okay, listen, here's the date, and here's the plans. Here's how we're going to do it. Here's when we're going to do it. In fact, there's a, a spot reserved for you, every single one of my children. I, there's a spot reserved, ready and waiting for you. The day comes, and uh, my oldest son, Carter, said, ah, Dad, uh, so-and-so invited me over their house, and so I think I'm just going to go hang out at their house for the day. I'm not going to go on the trip. Okay, son, and the rest of us go down to Detroit. We have a good time. A week or two later, Carter comes up to me, hey, hey, hey Dad, um, summer's coming to a close, and you remember, you promised us that, that we would go down to Detroit. Well, I've never been down to Detroit in this summer, so I haven't gone down, so when are we going? Well, son, you, you missed it. <laughs> we, we already went. And don't you remember, it was a couple of weeks ago, and I came to you, and I said, hey, here's when we're going, here's how we're going, and, and here's what's going to happen, and uh, you, you kind of had your chance, and you, you just decided, you, in a sense, elected, you chose not to go. Well, what about in response, Carter kind of gets frustrated and he says something like this, but dad, you promised. But dad, you, you, you promised. You, you, you gave me your word. You don't want me to think that you are not a man of your word. How can I trust you ever again when you promise something and you don't fulfill it? So let me ask you, in that illustration, did I keep my word? Well, you better believe I did. I sure did. I, I was faithful. Is my character or faithfulness lacking? Not at all. His non-attendance does not change the fact that I kept my word, that I fulfilled my promise, that I was faithful. And my friend, that is exactly the point that Paul is making about God. The unbelief of some Jews does not make God's promises of an effect. No, in fact, Paul says this. Isn't this a great statement? Uh, I put it this way. Let every man who offers such an argument be a liar. And God be true and faithful. Let every man that, that says such a thing be a liar. If Carter came and said that to me, listen, my friend, he's a liar. He had the opportunity. It, it was, yes, conditional on his attendance. He chose not to attend. The reality is I still kept my promise. I fulfilled what I said that I would do. Paul's point. God's character has not changed. I wouldn't close up things yet. I still got a few more minutes. In fact, Paul says something else in the verse 2 that I think is 
tremendously interesting. And we're going to look at it. So Paul develops that same thought. He quotes in his answer something from the Old Testament. Some of your Bibles tell you where he quotes from, doesn't it? If you look in your middle column, the old school field will tell you. He is quoting from Psalm chapter 51 in verse 4. Here's what it is, sake of time. Against thee, thee only, have I sinned and done this evil in thy sight, that thou mightest be justified when thou speakest and be clear when thou judgest. Who wrote it? Yeah, it's an easy one, David, right? The psalmist, David wrote it. When did he write it? Well, he had just had a visitor, didn't he? Remember that visitor's name? His name was Nathan, the prophet. What did Nathan come and do? Let's make it concise. He wagged his finger in David's face and he said what? Thou art the man. He had just committed twofold sin, right? Murder and adultery and, and everything else, lying, no doubt, and, and uh, conspiracy. You could let, add up the charges against David. And Nathan has come and said, Thou art the man, and you are guilty before God, and you have sinned, and judgment's coming, David, and you need to be ready. Now, this is interesting. Don't miss it. Why does Paul pull out of Psalm chapter 51 this passage? Why does he reference it? Well, notice David's response. Nathan has come and pointed his finger. He's exposed and confronted him over his sin. David doesn't sit there and says, well, God, you, you promised me the kingdom. You made me the king. You gave me power and all these things. Uh, if you didn't want me to take advantage of my position, then you shouldn't have made me king. You know, there'd be some people who blame God in that way, right? Well, God, you let me be king. And so why wouldn't I take advantage of it? Why wouldn't I do all these things? In other words, challenging the very character of God. But no, David did not do that. What is David's response? Well, if you go back and look at Psalm chapter 51, we see that David's attitude is simple and he, it is of a contrite heart. What does he say? Now listen to me. He says this, I have sinned. And God, in your judgment of my sin, your honor, your faithfulness, your integrity is upheld. You are still God in every way that you've always been. My sin does not take away from you. Yes, you established me at king, but I am not a referendum on you. When I sin, it's because there dwelleth no good thing in my flesh. It's not a referendum on you, God. And I love what David says. Just in case someone says, well, you know, man, God made a mistake. No, God makes no mistakes. David says this. Did you catch it? Notice the verse. That thou, God, mightest be justified. You are still just in all you do. And even in your interactions and with mankind, you are just and faithful. You are declared just in your dealings with me. And then he says what? God, you are clear. There's nothing on your account for my sin. This was all me. And so what is Paul bringing the, the unbeliever, the Jew, to? I stand before God and I am as condemned as anyone. Not because I am, because uh, someone else did something. No, no, no. I am condemned. Why? For all have and come short of the glory of God. So, my friend, just like David stood before and said, whoa, this is not on God's account. You are clear. You are justified in your dealings with me. Paul is pointing out to the Jews who would, most of them would have known Psalm chapter 51. He said, look, you remember David, your forefather? He looked at God and said, whoa, 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 this is all on me. So Jew, when you stand before God and you're destined for hell because you've never trusted in Jesus Christ, don't look at God and say God wasn't unfaithful. 
Don't look at God and say, that, oh, you know what, you didn't keep up, you're into the bargain. No, you look at God and you say, God, you're just. Your account is clear. I am condemned because I am a sinner. Paul is building a beautiful case as he is responding to every single one of these questions. Paul quotes to help the Jews see that their condemnation is not a referendum on God or his character. It's not a demonstration of God's unfaithfulness, but rather, as David points out, it contrarily proves that God is both just and good. God is faithful. His character and integrity is not harmed or diminished by this, but rather it is enhanced. I love how Paul responds. He just simply says this, God forbid. God forbid. We're done for this evening. We'll get into the next question as we see it there in the next few verses as Paul continues to build the case, answer those questions that these Jews would have. Brother Cliff, you'll bring those prayer requests here. Let me remind you to pray for Al Livka, pray for Jeff.